You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. I've never been a professional psychologist, but when people talk about Platonic this and Gnostic that, and heaven help us, Greco-Roman thought, and demonstrating not only that they're not familiar with the ancient philosophical communities, but they really don't care to become familiar, I start to imagine that I know how psychologists feel when people declare themselves introverts on Instagram. But fear not, listener. Elizabeth Lash Quinn, in her recent book, Ars Vitae, The Fate of Inwardness and the Return of the Ancient Arts of Living, not only distinguishes the real Stoics from their swords and sandals counterfeits, but also gives us some really good questions to pose as we think about all the, how all those things relate. And even better, and this is a spoiler, Plato is not the bad guy. Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome Dr. Lash Quinn to the show to talk about this book. Elizabeth, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. This volume has its moments of rhetorical appeal and its moments of historical examination. And I want to start with one of the terms that bridges the two, and that term is eudaimonistic. Now, many of our listeners have read and enjoyed Aristotle and Alistair McIntyre and Stanley Hauerwas and Jamie Smith, but not everyone has. So take a moment here at the outset. What makes a way of life, to use Pierre Adot's phrase, eudaimonistic, and why does that Hellenic adjective matter? Well, I think that um, it matters um, because um, there are whole different ways of positioning oneself in the world um, based on how one thinks about one's basic endeavor of living. So the eudaimonistic is a way of living that focuses on the good life as uh, communitarians um, fo- you know, emphasized in the, in the 1980s and 90s, the good life as in the moral life. So a life of responsibilities to others and not just um, you know, rights and privileges uh, for oneself, but, but even further, a life that is rewarding um, in itself, a life that is good for the person uh, as well, not just good as in morally well-behaved and good um, as in, you know, devoted to others, those things as well. But the idea was that by living a virtuous life, um, that's what actually led people to feel good. So the idea of a good life was really two-pronged, you know, a, a life that made one um, have a sense of well-being profoundly, but also was good um, morally, um, as in, you know, moral virtue. And that's one of those connections that I feel like broke uh, somewhere around Immanuel Kant, uh, where, you know, in the the critique of practical reason, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing and I'm abusing Kant here, but he basically says, if it feels good, it's probably not right. Um, mm-hmm. What difference does that make when we talk about, you know, visions of morality? Um, well, it, 
Let me think for a second. That's a great question. I didn't, I didn't think of it in that way. Um, what difference does it make? Could you, could you spell out what you mean by what difference does it make to whom? Well, sure, sure. I mean, you know, as far as, you know, when we think about our lives, and I mean, I guess I'm thinking about a context like a, uh, you know, the, uh, the uh, examen of St. Ignatius, when we're yes. examining uh, what we've done over the course of the day. Uh, you know, I, I have a hunch that Immanuel Kant, the grumpy old German that he is, would say, uh, if something made you feel good, you should be suspicious that you probably didn't do good. But it seems like that's very different from a eudaimonistic way of thinking about it. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, I think that uh, that idea that uh, it's a kind of a Calvinist idea too, that, that sneaking suspicion that somewhere someone is happy, that idea that- um, Yes, H.L. Mencken, I love that line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, that that's very different from this way of thinking because, and I I think part of it is that it's not all about emotion, although the emotions are very much involved, but it's not all about how you feel. It's also, and, and partly because how you feel is wedded to this other thing, which is how you think. So it is about the knowledge of that, that you're living a virtuous life, that that knowledge is crucial to your own well-being and sense that you, you are living a, a happy life. So for happiness, virtue is necessary. Very good, very good. Well, stories tend to have good guys and bad guys. And if the eudaimonistic philosophies are the good guys in this book's story, then consumerism and the therapeutic tend to be the bad guys. Now, yeah. therapeutic, I mean, it sounds so nice. Uh, what makes it dangerous as well? Yeah, it does sound nice, doesn't it? Particularly right here in the middle of winter, it's cold, it's gray here. <laughs> um, and it does, therapeutic sounds like, oh, it's going to make you feel good and warm and, and relaxed and have all this peace and all of those good things. Um, and that's what the therapeutic promises. So it's not really the therapeutic per se, it's a modern version of the therapeutic that's really, um, really the problem. It, um, yes, it, it involves consumerism, also just the culture of greed and a, a way of life that puts the self first, but not necessarily in a profound way that would make uh, selves feel rewarded and feel a sense of well-being, but actually in a, in a kind of um, false and superficial way. So it seems to gratify individual um, urges and wants and wishes and things, but actually stirs up um, more wants, um, even while claiming to um, sort of satisfy them. So it's the, the gripe that I have and other people who have criticized the modern therapeutic is that it claims to be therapeutic in that nice sense, but it cannot deliver. Um, we have profound needs and um, desires that aren't all about satisfying our most fleeting physical um, or emotional um, needs or desires. And those other profound um, aspects of, of humans 
and um, sort of um, curiosities and and um, expansiveness um, and and you know our ourselves at our at our most inquisitive and searching those that that part of us can't be satisfied by you know a, a culture of um, kind of greed and speed and the flickering image as something that stimulates and distracts and then moves people on to the next thing fads and and celebrity and such things that bring people out of themselves and have them strangely looking at themselves almost like objects and definitely looking at other people as objects and then using them as such and i'll go ahead and confess that i should have run this down in the footnotes but i it didn't occur to me till i just now heard you talk um what relationship is there here if any uh, between this notion of the therapeutic and uh, Alistair McIntyre's critique of it in After Virtue, because there, one of his big critiques of the therapeutic is that, or the therapist as a modern character, uh, is that the therapist doesn't have any concern with the ultimate telos of the human being, but rather, uh, you know, leaves that up to the individual and basically, you know, just helps the person uh, be less hung up about pursuing a personal good. Is there a relationship there or is it just a, a, a linguistic coincidence? Um, there, there is a relationship. Um, I was probably more influenced by Philip Reef on that particular um, idea of, uh, um, as someone who really fleshed out the therapeutic and, and uh, talked about what he thought was wrong with it. Um, I was more influenced by McIntyre's ideas about moral virtue and practice and such, but it certainly fits with what McIntyre has said about the therapeutic. Um, and, and I, like McIntyre, think that one of the um, main problems with the therapeutic is the, um, the, the modern therapeutic culture, is the um, manipulation of other people. So that's very important that um, that without a sense of shared moral good and as you say with the therapist encouraging people and this is not at all to criticize all therapists because there are very many wonderful counselors in this world who are out there busy saving people's lives and succeeding at it so in a time of woe and trouble a therapist might be a vital person in one's life um, and, there, and there are all kinds of different uh, therapists, just as there are of human beings. So, um, but the sort of stock character that McIntyre is talking about and is, a, I think, a very common um, type in, in therapy um, in the West um, is uh, someone who won't pass judgment and, and does not want to um, convey a sense of what's good and bad morally speaking um, or and and for understandable reasons you know trying to um, allow people to to be themselves and to consult their own sense of things but but to a fault to a fault where um, the culture of therapy and I mainly am talking about a therapeutic culture outside of the you know therapist's office um, the culture itself at large where um, um, you know, the highest ideals of the 
the therapist client relationship are are lost and instead what we have is kind of a culture of buying and selling and then the therapeutic becomes um, very very untied from the sense of um, trying to help people but um but so even in those relations though of counseling that there can be a sense of trying to help people but the idea is that you help people best by not passing judgment by accepting anything and that um, I don't think is helpful because it's it's living on a um, a kind of um, foundationless assumption that there can't be anything that we um, any any shared sense of what is good for an individual person. All right. All right. I want to get on into some of these schools of philosophy because I'll, I'll confess, I wasn't quite sure what the book was doing until I got three or four of these in. And then once I realized what you were doing, I really enjoyed the book. But okay. let's start out with Gnosticism. One of the terms of abuse that I'll admit that I've mocked in the past precisely for its seemingly endless flexibility is Gnostic. And I'm still more suspicious than I am enthusiastic. So convince me here, what is Eric Vogelin's case that, a mo that modern life and thought tend to be Gnostic? And what kinds of inquiry become off limits when an intellectual scene becomes Gnostic? Yes, I, I know what you're saying. Um, and just to preface it, um, uh, I want to clarify for every reader, listener out there that um, that doesn't, the enthusiasm is for the concept of Gnosticism as a critique of modern life and the flexibility where it can apply to almost anything. It's not in any way enthusiasm for Gnosticism. Oh, right, right. I, I guess what I'm referring to in theological yeah. circles, a, yes. a theological libertine can mock any kind of sexual restraint as Gnostic because it denies what the body wants. Mm -hmm. And then 30 seconds later, the, you know, opponent of sexual libertinism will mock the sexual libertine as Gnostic because it ignores the, you know, spiritual harm that can come from abusing the body. Uh, so, I mean, if, if both of those people can call each other Gnostic, yes. I sometimes wonder if the word means anything, but you're, you're going to make a case. You're going to convince me. I know this. I'm feeling good. <laughs> well, I think that Vogelin was um, probably applying it to too many things um, by saying, you know, it, it's Marxism, it's fascism, it's it's all of that. But I do think that the way he was using it was as uh, as a, a grounds for a social criticism, and in that way, it does ring true. It often does ring true. But I wasn't trying to. Um, make claims about all of those those ideologies, but the idea that um, in Gnosticism that the the created world is is just an illusion and it's a very evil one at that, and that a select few are sort of meant to be written in in all time to 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 wake up and to see the real truth, and that truth is not that there is a God, but that there is a God beyond God. And the, the God is, first God, that is the creator God, and that is an evil God, that the real good spiritual entity is a more abstract, 
um, force beyond the creator God. And so that renders the physical world um, really just something intolerable. And it makes um, one um, want to abandon it. And, and so, so Vogelin was, um, was arguing that it, um, this way of thinking paves a way for sort of really extreme ways of trying to remake the world um, by rejecting the world as it is. And that I think there is truth to. And uh, for instance, in some of the transhumanist um, fantasies and such of, you know, what will exist once we get rid of, you know, once the human being, human person drops away, what kind of world will there be? You know, um, will we, should we be, um, you know, freezing our bodies so that maybe later we can wake up? Should we, should we just abandon the body and just think of this consciousness living um, in the future? All of these things, that is what really strikes me as Gnostic. Um, anything that um, can just, you know, um, abstract the spiritual force from anything in the real world. Um, so I guess that's what I see, you know, most important um, at the, as, as something at the heart of, of not the Gnostic. All right. All right. And I'll go ahead and tell our listeners that uh, the moment when I moved over to the Amen pew, this is Christian Humanist Profile, so there's an Amen pew. Uh, the moment when I sat down on that Amen pew was when you noted that Platonism and Gnosticism take radically different stances towards the world of matter and energy. Uh, I, 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 I said, hallelujah, a, a book that actually distinguishes between Platonism and Gnosticism. So take a moment. Why do people tend to identify Platonism and Gnosticism as the same kind of thing and as antibody? And what kinds of close reading dispel that identity and establish some more helpful distinctions? Well, I think any kind of close, really close reading immediately dispels that. But that's, you know, my my view of Plato. But um, uh, that's because you spend time reading Plato. Well, if anyone wants to dip into it who hasn't already, um, just the cave allegory um, raises this immediately because the the Gnostic idea in in modern um, you know cultural artifacts I like to call them things like movies and self help books and the like um, we have things like um, the Matrix uh, movies and things like that where um, all of a sudden it's obvious to the main characters that the world is an illusion and nothing but a really evil awful illusion and there's no real escape but um but certain enlightened people sort of wake up to the the illusion and things and see the truth and then everyone else is just these these poor people trudging around in in a benighted state and things like that um and then you have something like plato's cave allegory where people are in this cave and are watching images flickering on the wall, which sounds very familiar. It's amazing this was written so long ago uh, before modern technologies, because many people are, um, and all of us are most, you know, have to 
um, do our work sometimes with, with screens and things like that. So he was talking about these images on the wall and then the people who could uh, um, escape, people were imprisoned. Um, and then when people could escape and see, come up to the earth level and see the sky and such, they were almost blinded by the light and even wanted to go back to the cave until they really um, came out again um, and realized the glory of it. And so to me, that's the ebb that captures the, the, um, the way that Gnosticism and Platonism are, could not be further from one another. One of them sees the world as an illusion to be escaped and to put behind us and try to move beyond and, and find this higher spiritual entity out there somewhere that beyond human life and human beings. And the other one says that um, the illumination was as soon as someone came up to earth level and that's the world and the sun and you know everything in the um, the created world. So um, I hope I think did that answer? I can't remember. Oh, absolutely. And I love teaching that dialogue. And you know what I always emphasize to my students is that once you have gone up to the world of the real, you have a responsibility. You have to go back down into the cave so that yes. you can bring that reality to the people in the cave, right? And the same happens with the uh, the myth of Ur at the end of the dialogue, right? You know, the the good souls, the righteous souls have a vision of the cosmic order, and then they return to, uh, you know, they return to the land of the living uh, so that they can serve them as, you know, philosophers of some sort. So, yeah, absolutely. I No, as I said, I... Uh, I appreciate that because I have read entirely too many books that, uh, you know, either say Platonism denies the goodness of the body or even worse, Greek thought denies the goodness of the body. And uh, just I've, I've read too many books like that. So uh, see, your book has become therapeutic. So I <laughs> but in the good sense. Good, good. Oh, well, I want to turn to stoicism because many of this book's best passages involve close reading of popular cultural artifacts for the sake of hearing in them both the echoes of ancient philosophy and also places where they depart from that. So one such passage involves uh, the movie Gladiator as a cinematic reflection on a few big ideas in stoicism. So what would Epictetus have recognized in Russell Crowe's movie, and what elements still smell like consumerism or therapeutic? Mm, yeah, <laughs> uh, Epictetus was quite a character. So that with him, he's on the side of Stoicism that I, I consider sort of the more um, sort of harsh, cut and dry, here's the rules and things. Um, and then there are other people like Marcus Aurelius who have these much more intricate, elaborate um, notions that take into account um, feeling and things a, a bit more. But Epictetus um, really you know, had a few doozies of passages where he would say that um, you know, if you break a, um, a ceramic cup, don't despair. I mean, it's it's just a cup. That's you know, that's not something that you can um, 
that has an effect on your moral character. And that's what Stoics were all about, that tried to put aside those things that didn't have to do with morals and character. And so they weren't of value really in that sense um, and put a, those aside and focus on the things that do relate to moral character um, and you know that you can control that are in your control versus those that are out of your control and so then he likened it to losing a spouse or a child and so don't um, get all upset about that because you can't get upset about things that aren't human and the thing is they were human you know they they might be gone now but um so you know he had some advice like that um that's just the extreme though um the advice was really about you know how to hold yourself in this world and and about character and such and in um, emotion and reigning how to rein your emotions in so that emotions don't cloud judgments and things like that so I think that in Gladiator, um, we have the character of Maximus, played by Russell Crowe, and he um, displays a great deal of stoicism throughout the, the movie. Um, really bad things happen to him along the way, and he does lose family members in the, the most gruesome ways, and um, his life is really a tragedy, and he has opportunities to to act out and um, get get uh, rageful, you know, wrathful vengeance, um, but does not. Um, but then in the end, he does get, you know, vengeance through physical violence when he kills um, the com uh, Commodus and the emperor at the time um, in the film version. Um, and that, um, you know, it's really a gruesome killing scene that uh, is kind of questionable as to, you know, what, what the audience of the movie um, uh, is experiencing because there's a pleasure in watching him finally get this vengeance. And um, it, that is, not really in keeping with um, stoicism at its best. And, and a lot of, and there's a lot of other violence in the movie, um, but there's also a lot of uh, love and affection and things. And some of that Epictetus would not, um, would not approve of. Um, and so- But Marcus not, might. Yeah, Marcus would and did. Um, and, and I think the only reason I wrote Epictetus into that question is because I didn't want to distinguish between the character in the movie and the writer of oh. the meditations. Yeah. <laughs> so that was just True. me being lazy. <laughs> <laughs> True. It is funny that Marcus is in the movie. Yeah, that could be confusing. Well, in the same Stoicism chapter, you pose for me one of the book's most important questions. When a way of life, philosophical or otherwise, claims to do, quote, what works, end quote, what counts as work? What kind of work is it doing? So talk about stoicism, but go from there where you will. I mean, what kind of work should a way of life do? Mm -hmm. Well, yes. Now that's the key question. So if you have stoicism and you go along with some of those tenets that I was just suggesting, 
the big question is why and how and you know who are you affecting so you could say um that it if the goal is that the individual should be able to pursue his or her own goals and therefore should not let emotion distract um, oneself from pursuing those goals, then the question is why and what are those goals? So the goals could be, you know, riches and, and fame and um, or evil pernicious goals. And would that still be okay to use stoic discipline to pursue those goals? And that's where I think there's a distortion of stoicism when, because no, the Stoics did not think so. They, all of their philosophy was rooted in, um, in moral and ethical considerations. So when they talked about, you know, pursuing your goals and, and um, having control over the things you have control over so that you can, you know, pursue what you're planning to pursue, they meant that you were pursuing goodness. You know, it was, these were, um, as we said, eudaimonistic philosophies. So, but once you take away that and you just use stoic discipline, then you are basically, um, you know, allowing for the pursuit of any ends, but through very powerful, strong, you know, proven uh, means. So it's a very dangerous thing just to endorse, you know, stoicism the na in name, but not, um, not really bring it back in its fullness as a philosophy, as a moral philosophy. Um, so um, then going beyond stoicism, just thinking about ways of life and, um, and the question of, um, you know, what work do they do? If we say, well, does, does stoicism work? And, and if we use that to um, test any, any way of living, then the question is, well, what do we mean by work? Um, is it efficient? Um, well, there are efficient ways of um, bringing about genocide. So efficiency doesn't seem like a very good standard all by itself of whether a philosophy of life works, whether it's practical. Well, then practical for what? Practical to moral ends? That would be more in keeping with um, these, these philosophical schools. Apart from Gnosticism is something separate that I crit criticize, but and is not one of the ancient um, Greco-Roman schools, just to you know put that out there. Um, but the other schools that I look at, they are eudaimonistic and they are rooted in um, pursuing moral ends. Right. And what I appreciate the most about this line of inquiry, um, because I, you know, I am a Christian who's been very heavily influenced by post-Nietzschean theological mm -hmm. ethics, is that in that eudaimonistic model, you actually have to make a case for what is good. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I'll go ahead and say, I mean, just in case he's listening and he, th he thinks I'm talking about him, I am. A friend of mine in the podcast world who's also working on his uh, doctorate in psychology um, sometimes says, uh, you know, the people like the reason people like psychotherapy is because it works. And, uh, every now and again, I'll, I'll shoot them an email and I'll say, uh, works for what? 
<laughs> and you know, I, I can, I can just feel him rolling his eyes out there uh, on the West coast. So, I, <laughs> but that's the effect I have on people. I want to turn to Epicureanism and one of your central cinematic sites for Epicureanism is not a swords and sandals action film, uh, but it's the very late modern eat, pray, love, uh, which I have not seen or read, but I used to shelve all the time when I worked at a public library. What do that film and that book glean from Epicureanism and what elements are more consumeristic than Epicurean? And, and by the way, if you want to say what Epicureanism is before you go there, feel free. Okay. Well, in short, in brief, um, Epicureanism is the, um, the ancient uh, Greco-Roman philosophy that um, cast pleasure as the ultimate good, the ultimate good for human beings. So that sounds like a recipe for indulgence, you know, hedonistic um, pursuits of all kinds, uh, fulfillment of the appetites, any old appetite, etc. But the Epicureans were, were not like that at all. They were talking about um, pleasure as fitting the pursuit of virtue and, you know, moral virtue, goodness. So they, and they also had a, um, a sense of measure and proportion. And they, they taught that pursuit of pleasure just for its own sake um, leads down a very disastrous path because partly because you can't even fulfill, fulfill your pursuit of pleasure on an ongoing basis if you, um, if you pursue it to too drastic a degree because you won't be having pleasure the next day or the next week or the next month as you pay, for, pay the, the price for that sort of mad unleashed pursuit of pleasure. So they were really talking about living lives of moderation and enjoying the, the pleasures of life, the simple pleasures like eating and drinking and being around friends and um, sitting in the garden and things like that. So that's what the ancient Epicureans were all about. And they were really determined to separate themselves from the hedonist because there were, there were other people who believed a kind of philosophy of hedonism where it really was about just letting it all out and getting everything and um, pursuing pleasure at any cost. So, so they were not for that. And um, so then when it comes to Eat, Pray, Love, um, there's so many ways that that movie and it's also a, a memoir that it was based on, it's a whole phenomenon. And there's so many ways that it really is a marvelous phenomenon and also um, is very Epicurean in the sense of um, trying, there, there's a, a woman who's the main character and she's trying to um, find herself <laughs> um, and she, but she does pursue different things like going to Italy and, and embracing the food and not being so caught up with calories and, and thinking about food in a quantitative sense in a, in a negative quantitative sense, as in, you know, breaking it all down to its scientific, you know, um, realities, but instead embracing it as part of culture, part of being around people and, and just um, pleasure um, of being alive and things like that, which you definitely can get in Italy with the food. And then um, she, she pursued um, spiritual 
um, ends elsewhere. And so she was really on a, a quest. And some of that ties in with is a kind of modern Epicureanism, I think. But um, so much of it, though, fits the modern therapeutic even better, the therapeutic culture that does not, in the end, deliver um, all those good, good feelings of something that would be truly therapeutic in the deepest sense, this deepest spiritual sense. Um, and, you know, she, she leaves, she's married at the beginning, and she leaves her husband only on the idea of this vague sense of, she tries to explain it later to a woman, in, an old woman in Italy who said, well, why did you um, end your marriage? And she could hardly even think and, and answer it. And she said, well, um, we, we grew apart. So it wasn't even, of course, there are valid reasons to leave, to leave um, unhealthy and dangerous or um, really negative, um, you know, relations that don't fulfill the human person in, in any way. But this was really someone who, she left someone who was pretty nice and um, but they just had this vague sense of growing apart. And then she went through all of those different travels and everything. And, um, and in the end, she found a man. And she, and so the answer ended up being, you know, finding a man again. So my question would be, well, why would that be any different? Um, wouldn't you have the same task, which is to try not to grow apart? Um, so, I think in the end, it was um, it was a kind of tale of the modern therapeutic more than anything. Right. I mean, in the absence of a a fixed, uh, I don't even know what to call it, uh, expectation at minimum, but really a fixed. I mean, I'll just go ahead and say it: a theology of marriage uh, that you know calls for the joining of two lives until death they part. Uh, yeah, I mean, it becomes a matter of self-fulfillment rather than uh, anything transcending self-fulfillment. Is that, is that a fair summary or am I off target? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And, it, and what's really sad to think about, and I think there's a lot of value in that book and, in, in, uh, and it is the story of someone's life. So of course it, it's of value, it's someone's memoir, but, and it, even in the movie, and, and I think many people who attend the movie or, or watch at home, et cetera, and read that um, memoir are coming from a different place and maybe even taking something different out of it. Um, many times it's, it's, you know, sisters viewing it together or uh, a mother and her daughter or families. Um, and there's a sense that it helped them get in touch with the spiritual side of their life and, and maybe even, um, and because there's a whole um, book of kind of responses to it that you can read and people talk about how it helped them build their own relationship back to, from a, a crumbling position to a good position. So, you know, uh, how something is received is very different from how it might be in, in the way it's written um, or its principles, et cetera. Um, and, um, but it's sad to think that the default position for many people and in, in the dominant culture, I believe, is this sense that there must be something more out there. So it's constantly putting pressure on all forms of relationships and communities where 
you know, it's hard enough just to sustain bonds between people. There's so many challenges, of course, it's difficult. Um, and then if the, the culture is always saying there's something else out there, maybe the problem is you're with the wrong person, there could be someone else out there. And then you're with the next person. And then maybe there's something else out there. And it could just right, go on right. forever, you know, <laughs> instead of thinking, well, maybe these problems are really more problems of how to live together. Um, and we should um, confront them that way. And instead, eat, pray, love um, sort of has this feeling of a vacation, like, you know, and um, but what about when we return from the vacation? Is there a way to renew our own lives on an ongoing basis? So we get all the good feelings of a vacation, but through regular everyday life and the struggles that we have together, and then we try to overcome together. Right. One of the really, really good things about this book is that, as I said at the outset, uh, each of the examinations of a philosophical school combines uh, these pop culture explorations with close readings of primary texts and then also modern academic engagements with it. And that combination just really, I mean, once I got into the rhythm, it really worked. So on the academic side of Epicureanism, uh, you critique someone I know well because I wrote my dissertation on Shakespeare, Stephen Greenblatt and specifically his book, The Swerve, not for focusing on Epicurean texts, but for making everything pre-Christian into some variety of Epicureanism, and for turning Epicureanism into a kind of revolutionary liberation movement, rather than a sort of quiet, moralistic way of life that you just narrated. Um, so of those overreaches, we've got a few to pick from. Which one is the most egregious in this book and why? <laughs> yeah, that's a very funny question. That's that's great. I can't believe you're asking me to pick. Um, well, well, you know, it's an hour long show. We got we got to limit ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I think the first is more egregious because um, to cast all um, all thought. What? How did you put it before? Um, I mean, before the Christian era as some version of Epicureanism, I mean, yeah. that, I, and yeah. I'll confess, I have this book on my shelf, I have not yet read it. So your treatment of it is the most I have engaged with it, unfortunately. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, um, I think that the first is more egregious to cast all, um, all thought before, you know, in the pre-Christian era as Epicurean, because there was this rich conversation among all of these different schools and these schools of thought really come up again and again um, throughout, you know, all of, of Western, you know, culture and really beyond, well beyond the West. Um, and so in some ways, the schools of thought can be seen as uh, typologies, like a typology of different character types or different leanings, different philosophical leanings, different philosophical schools of thought. And you can see them in all kinds of things in all periods afterward. So um, to say that there's really only one choice from antiquity, and that's the Epicurean one, obscures all of the others, like Stoicism and Cynicism and um, and Platonism and Aristotelianism, well, all these rich ways of thinking um, that have 
uh, such intricacy and and so such resource resources for us um, that just you know are endless um, to reduce it in that way and to make it seem as though the great discovery in the of Lucretius the the Epicurean um, long Epicurean poem um, in the Renaissance was somehow a rediscover that was the um, little you know microcosm of the discovery of all of um, ancient thought and that that discovery then is what launched us on the you know on modern modern life and the um, and the pursuit of pleasure and things versus this kind of benighted past of the so-called dark ages it's just baffling as to why Stephen Greenblatt would want to write it in this way um, but um, so even though the that idea is probably more horrendous the idea of um, making Epicureanism into that sort of radical liberationist message of the modern age is pretty egregious too considering that's not uh, I don't think that we can even say that um, it's almost like blaming the Epicureans for modern excesses and um, they would be the first to want to rein them in but I um, but I also but I, I think it's worse that there's an obscuring of of um, alternative ways of thinking about and, and again relying on your reading of it it seemed that Greenblatt was almost subbing Lucretius in for Galileo that you know <laughs> the standard narrative that you know you have the dark ages and then along comes Galileo and all of a sudden we have the glorious age of science and reason um, yes you know uh, it seems like, you know, it's kind of a Mad Libs, you know, we'll just switch out Galileo for Epic, or not Epictetus, Epicure, no, Lucretius. <laughs> yeah. And that's the story we end up with. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's the part that struck me as bizarre. And of course, now I, I, I really do need to go read that book because I need to uh, have my own reading of it, not just rely on other people's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I do think that that's, that's my point with all of the things that I analyze that I, I would never pick um, you know, cultural artifacts, whether it's a, a work of scholarship or um, a movie and give it really sustained attention unless I thought it deserved it to a certain degree. You know, um, it's easy to criticize things that are really worthless, but it usually you just do it in a, a second, you know, as part of a long list of things, or maybe it's not even worth a mention, but these are really um, engaging works. And I wanted to spend time with them and think about them and ask myself if they were mainly Epicurean or mainly Stoic. And it's such an exciting way to think once you, you get a sense of these schools because you see it all around you. And then you can even ask, you know, about yourself. Are you, what do you think you are? Do, or what different strains might you have and which ones are dominant at what time? And what about the people you know? And it really helps explain a lot or at least illumine um, some of what you see around. And um, it, was, it was a deeper, a way of going deeper in talking about human action and behavior and, um, and uh, positioning in the world that we, by, by forgetting all of that and not paying attention to it, we, we really are missing one of the main ways of thinking about the world around us. Um, 
you know, it's, and it's one of the most exciting and fun. So I think that this were, you know, it's worth a read. It's a very exciting read, but um, I would, I think we should always, you know, ask ourselves if, if the statements are true or not, <laughs> which ones right. are <laughs> That is important. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, your, your cynicism chapter goes all kinds of interesting directions. And I have to pause here and tell our listeners that this book is worth reading just for the cynicism chapter. The rest of the chapters are just really good thinking that we readers don't deserve. But let's think for a moment about the cynics and their late modern heirs. Um, you mentioned Philip Reef before, and you explore Reef's notion of a death work as something akin to the cynics way of interrogating life. And I want you to talk to our listeners for a moment about that particular kind of aesthetics, both the ancient and the modern. What is a death work and how do death works inherit and how do they betray the way of Diogenes the dog? Yeah. Um, well, Philip Reef's book, My Life Among the Death Works, which is just such a, uh, such a resonant title and thought for someone writing about a kind of a memoiristic, but also a classical sociological study of um, modern life through images. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's very uh, critical of, of modern uh, cultural expression and not all of it, but um, that those kinds of works that tear down um, something in the inherited shared cultural um, tradition. So, uh, and um, so you might, if you, if you read, it's a very dense work and he uses a kind of specialized jargon that he invented himself. But if you can, um, if you can sort of go through that, it has an incredible impact as, as social criticism because he's looking at different works and showing how um, they, they, can, um, they can tear apart um, kind of our cultural inheritance or things that were once held to be sacred and in a shared way, not, you know, um, communities um, believed um, certain things to be um, of value, et cetera. And these, these works that he analyzes um, sort of tear that apart. And, and sometimes, you know, you might think, well, he's really going way off the deep end here because he'll even criticize certain um, paintings that are pietas that, um, that he thinks are almost borderline erotic. And he, so he, he really is very, very sensitive and drawing a very fine line there. And sometimes these are works that we that are part of our shared cultural inheritance that we all value. So it's it might not all be plausible, but but even so, the whole heart of it is the idea that um, that um, some works are actively trying to tear down our cultural traditions, even sometimes the parts of those traditions that are the best. And one of the things that bothers him the most in, in visual art is when there's, well, not just, um, not just art, but 
in, in images, um, so this could in, include something like an advertisement, is when human beings are portrayed only in part, not their whole body or their whole face, or, or something is, um, is really, um, there, there's, there's some huge disjuncture where you're not getting the sense of the whole human being. And he thinks that that way is a kind of cultural dismemberment that we, we need more images of wholeness of, of, of how we are as a whole um, and that it's it's doing violence to the human person to to portray them in certain ways so these are and and you know you can take it beyond images to think of any kinds of actions um, that people are taking that are really destructive um, of, of people and of traditions and of, of things that we value and share. And so that's that's a death work. Um, and then I can't remember the second part. Yeah, I mean, how does that relate to cynicism? And, uh, you know, yeah. I, I, I did a kind of binary. I mean, what does it inherit from cynicism? And then how does it betray cynicism? Yeah, so I, I um, linked this to cynicism and there's a movement right now trying to bring back cynicism and there there are other people who are just sort of enacting the the bringing back of cynicism without consciously doing so um and um so the the ancient cynics were had a kind of appeal to them certainly in their own time um and diogenes the dog he was called um, was the guy who was out in the public square and he was naked and he did all of his bodily functions out there in uh, full view of people. And he supposedly lived in a barrel and things like that. And supposedly he was beloved. And, um, um, and his whole point was to enact a kind of rebellion against fakeness and um, hypocrisy and the way that the upper upper crust, you know, um, behave and they have these social conventions and they act um, one way, but, you know, portray themselves one way, but then act another, all the hypocrisy of um, that can be in social convention where people are acting, you know, perhaps like they're getting along and they like each other, but then they're actually stabbing each other behind their back and all those kinds of things. And the idea was that someone was uh, like that was throwing off all artifice and being sort of the, the true, uh, the, the truth but um, not stating the truth, but actually enacting the truth. So it wasn't really a school of philosophy in the same way as the others, but it was more like a, a street philosophy in a way. Um, and there was a lot of um, sort of dramatizing of you know, what the point was. So I think that um, um, what, do, what, what do death works inherit did you say what do they inherit from that and what do they how do they yeah betray? and what do they betray yeah. uh-huh yeah. so they inherit that sense of um that somehow we get at some kind of statement uh observation um by getting rid of all of the things that are sort of surrounding and maybe obscuring the the real thing so 
instead of um, going around prettifying the world and making everything, you know, palatable and things like that. Um, modern, you know, cynics would would get rid of all that. And the idea was, oh, we're getting to some deeper truth um, by doing that. But I think what they, what the modern versions um, often betray of the early cynicism was that what uh, Diogenes and other followers of the cynics were getting at was a moral truth that they, that's what bothered them was things like um, hypocrisy and social convention was the, like the social conventions of the rich, you know, and um, maybe feigning benevolence, but not taking care of the poor. So the, they were very concerned about inequity and, um, you know, the, the wrongs and the violence of life and things like that. So they were, they were trying to express moral truths. Whereas in many of the death works that Reef is looking at, there's really just a sense of sort of uncovering everything and letting it all out there, be out there for display um, for its own sake. And it's so kind of a surface without depth. Yeah, but also an untethered, uh, untethered now from a sense of, well, we're not even discussing moral right and wrong. Now we're just trying to get attention, you know? Right, right. Like Damien Hirst's um, skull, that's like a platinum skull with all these diamonds that's worth something like a hundred million dollars or something like that, which, you know, there really is a moral question about that in a society, in a world with poverty and, and you know, suffering and things to make a work like that that's not really even, I, I don't think myself, a work of art. It's a concept, you know, it's a work of concept art, conceptual art. Um, and that that would be something that um, could, could qualify as a death work because um, is the point really some kind of higher moral truth or is it to the shock value, you know, and to, to get, to get more famous basically and right um make more money certainly certainly that's the case well i want to i want to turn the corner to the home stretch and i'll confess that encountering an enthusiastic case for neoplatonism in 2022 from someone who's not named milbank or pickstock was a joyful surprise <laughs> but some of our listeners already have their defenses up, you know, don't Neoplatonists hate the human body. What does your research present as an alternative to the old reduction of body hating Neoplatonists? Well, I, I think that that's a, that's a misinterpretation of Platonism and Neoplatonism and it. Um, it, is partly from the idea that reason is and mental things and the intellect and the mind are separate from the body. And that's just not what these ancient philosophers thought. Um, they, if you want some kind of really poetic, um, you know, mystical, spiritual defense of the human intellect, then you should definitely read Platonists and Neoplatonists because to them, reason itself was divine. And um, 
they thought that the fulfillment of the human being involved the use of reason, and that was like a transcendent category. So, the um, so that's that's partly um, the basis of the misunderstanding is that um, you know Plato's um, idea of the ideal the ideal, the ideal forms and um, was misunderstood and is continually misunderstood, I think, to, to mean that somehow the ideal has to be apart from the real. But that's not the relation that Plato thought there was between the ideal and the real. And the, the, in fact, the ideal was very interconnected with the real. And the body in, in Neoplatonism and Platonism, you know, it was a very different time. And we do have modern medicine. We have certain things at our disposal now. Um, at that time for Plotinus, um, it was common for people around to, that was much later than, you know, 500 years after Plato, but the first great Neoplatonist Plotinus spoke of the, the body as a prison, et cetera. But it partly was, you know, the without things like antibiotics, um, the body can really, um, really let you down. Um, it can with <laughs> with antibiotics too, because um, we are mere mortals. But um, but that was a convention. That was a way of talking. But then, um, in other parts of Plotinus, it's just this effusive beautiful poetic discussion of or presentation of the created world uh the physical world of human beings and of the inner life so i think um one thing we really have to um grant is that plato and and the neoplatonists thought that the inner life was a very real thing it was a fact. It was right, you know, in modernity, uh, so much of um, our notion of reality is is that the idea of the sort of outside manifestations of the the person, the the outer um, physical image of of the body, but their very notion of beauty was as something within. So part of what I'm trying to do in this book is ask us to get back inside ourselves and cultivate an inwardness that is outward looking, looking at the world through our own eyes, not looking at us at, from the outside um, as objects. And that's what the Platonists were doing. And, and they, they just give you know, unparalleled visions of the beauty of doing so when when the human being is fulfilled, not just sort of left as a mere body, but enlivened by a sense of transcendence and, um, and even self-transcendence. So it is definitely an irony because it's transcendence of the self, but it's, it's not even an irony, it's a paradox. It's a paradox that can be resolved by allowing for um, the, the reality of the inner life and of transcendence. And I, I want to follow up on this because for me, the most stirring contest of, of I'm going to call them ways of life in this book uh, is in this Neoplatonism chapter. 
And it's the contest between the sort of hip knowingness that stops attending to anything in the world at the first whiff of sentimentalism on one side. And on the other side, this receptive listening that seeks out the eternal precisely in the world that we sometimes ignore as too familiar. So what is it that inclines Neoplatonism against easy dismissal and towards sustained attention? Well, um, I think for one thing, it's, it's such a deep way of thinking that it automatically sort of gives you pause because you have to um, consider a lot if you're going to engage with it seriously. Um, and so I think that um, it's so deep that it, it doesn't really lend itself to, to, I mean, some would dismiss it easily, as we said, um, as a kind of anti-physical world philosophy. Um, but it, just even dipping into it, you can see that it's asking you to um, reorient yourself to the world in a way that um, that calls on you to to take in everyday life as a possible doorway to um, to um, you know, like the the ethereal, <laughs> the most, the highest, the heights of of beauty um, and love and wisdom and things, and kind of sees these all as tied together in one. So, in this fragmented time that we're living in, uh, and we have many marvelous works talking about the fragmentation of our times and the feeling that we're all being sort of divided, our, our time is divided, um, our, life's, our life is divided, our society is polarized and things, um, you know, turning to people who were rhapsodic about the idea and the possibilities of unity and union and things like that um, seems like a good, it, worth entertaining at least, um, I would hope. And um, so I think, you know, that that lends itself to sustained attention because if, so they, they believe in a kind of unity, a feeling of unity and experience of unity that you can have. Um, and if you try to get something like that, that makes you have to listen and, um, and not jump to, immediate conclusions about how um, some things, you know, don't, you know, don't agree. We, we don't agree. So let's dismiss them um, because we somehow know better. It kind of counsels a, a radical humility, I think, uh, a, um, a way of um, being in the world that asks you to wait, which is really against a lot of our our current ways because it's you know we have this sense of speed like everything should be available fast we should be right. able to cure things fast we should be able to push a couple buttons and get things to react to us and and then moreover the world needs my take on this right now right right <laughs> <laughs> yeah even before maybe it's digested and, and right uh, right 
Now, yeah. our listeners might have a suspicion that uh, because I enjoyed this book so much that it's going to culminate with Aristotelianism, the king of the philosophies, but it doesn't. Uh, one of your final discussions with academic philosophy involved Matthew Mendham's claim that contrary to McIntyre and Hauerwas, the best philosophy for practicing, quote, non-instrumental dedication to the virtues, end quote, is not Aristotelianism, but some kind of Platonism. So at the risk of a hit from the Hauerwasian mafia, and that's an inside joke from the theology world, I apologize for that. <laughs> what makes Platonism more promising for us 21st century readers? Mm-hmm. Well, of course, it's, it's not really truly my aim to, to um, you know, replace Aristotle in any way. I, you are allowed to, you, you don't have to cater to me. <laughs> No, I, I I love the Aristotelians, and I I am in common cause with them, and um, I um, I think that bringing Plato back into that same conversation um, and all other conversations is a good thing because he always prioritizes the good that it's a um, Goodness is what we are supposed to be thinking about, and true for Aristotle as well. Aristotle, um, you know, the idea of a telos of of each thing, each each kind of animal, and, and of the human person um, that we we should be fulfilling our telos, our goal. You know, it's kind of rising to the best of what we are capable of, considering what kind of um, you know thing we are, um, and that our life should be a life of virtue in pursuing the good life, and that the good life will then uh, reward us by um, being the good life in both senses of morally good and and feeling good and bringing well-being. All of this is a beautiful way of thinking about being in the world, and um, the idea that only on our deathbeds do we even know if we did lead a good life or not, that, you know, that is a quite a vision of the ever-evolving human being and the potential for becoming and all of that. Um, but I think what Plato, in Platonism, is where we can really locate the missing key that we need the most, and that is um, non-instrumentalism or um, a notion of the good that um, cannot be taken to for other purposes. Um, the, the idea that we are living, that we live for the good, not just because it's good for us in the end. Um, it may be good for us in the end, but regardless, we need to live according to the good, regardless right. of any, you know, any real world application or instrumentalism or results. And so it's a it's very um, mysterious thing to, to think because our minds really automatically go to cause and effect and, and for good reason. We should think that way when thinking about the world, but, and means end and things like that. But I think that we have to kind of suspend that um, mode of thought in order to grasp the true sources of non-instrumentalism. And it's a, it's a way of thinking that 
refuses to see other human beings as objects that we can manipulate and make do what we want them to do. And that that's not a good way of living in the world. So, um, you know, I, I don't know if that gives enough of a hint or a suggestion, but uh, there's. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, listeners, uh, of course, many of you will recognize there, I mean, the central thought experiment of the Republic, uh, Plato's, you know, probably justly most famous dialogue, uh, you know, is Dikaiosune, whether you translate that as uh, righteousness or morality, uh, mm-hmm. is it good in its own terms and for its own sake, or is it only good because it gives you good reputation, good standing, good health, whatever else, right? And yes. uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the 370 pages later, uh, <laughs> we arrive at, yes, it is good for its own sake. Yes. Yes. Well, Elizabeth, I have been at the wheel for most of this conversation. So in the spirit of hospitality, I'm going to let you have the last word. What do you want our listeners thinking about philosophy, the therapeutic, or whatever else as we head for the door? Uh, well, that's that's really hard to think. Um, I think um, one of the, the most important um, things I think I got out of this is the notion of Um, Even in times of tremendous suffering, loss, pain, agony, and just irritation even at all of the ways that the people around us can often seem to be at odds with our highest aspirations and, and, um, you know, what we want for the world to be, what the world to be like and what we want for our lives and our families, that one of the best responses or one of the most productive responses is actually just slowing down and stopping and doing nothing but doing it fruitfully and the way the the um, neoplatonists um, and plato were talking is to um, kind of create a a waiting of oneself a, a waiting period that um, that's a that's a very um, good response to suffering and difficulty that we always think about, well, what should we do about that? How should we, you know, somehow remedy that quickly or get out of that and go and have escapism and things? And probably there's a role for all of those. But there's also a kind of disposition, which is to take time and slow down and to wait. And what are you waiting for? You're waiting, um, if you're not prepared, you will miss the moments of the ultimate experience of the beauty uh, all around us. If you're never, if you're not even waiting or kind of tuning yourself to that, to be ready for it, um, it's very easy to miss because we have a lot of other things thrown at us. Um, So it's this uh, kind of contemplative state of mind that um, is rooted in Um, notions that our main task is always to think about goodness and transcendence. Elizabeth Lash Quinn, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. You're welcome. Thank you. It was a great honor. I hope the listeners um, get something from that conversation. I imagine they will. Thank you, listeners, for uh, tuning in, for downloading, for listening in with us. 
Uh, the book is Ars Vitae from uh, Notre Dame Press. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Britt Stack, and I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.